0: Welcome to another special episode of This Week in College Viability. My name is Gary Stocker. My guest today is interesting in many ways. First, he was a longtime president, and you don't see that a lot these days. He was a longtime president of a private college, McAllister College in Minnesota. And second, he is really good at naming books. His recently released book, Whatever It Is, I Don't Like It, has to be one of the best-named books I have ever seen. And the author is here to talk about his book and about higher education in 2023 and beyond. Brian Rosenberg, welcome to This Week in College Viability. Brian, who gets credit for the book title?
1: Well, uh, I think the credit has to be shared. Uh, I, I was the one who came up with that as an original working title. Uh, I thought that the press would abandon it and go to something like Resistance to Change in Higher Education, but uh, the marketing people at Harvard Education Press uh, pushed for that title, and uh, and they won, and so I'm very grateful that they did and they kept it. Ultimately, the credit has to go to Gradual Marx because it is, as you know, a a, a quote from uh, a song that he sings in the movie Horse Brothers. So, So let's just say that the credit for it is shared. <laughs>
0: But again, I still giggle at the title because it's it's so appropriate in many ways. And and actually when I when I do these podcasts, my preparation is I read the books and I, I like to go through chapter by chapter. And Brian, I didn't even get to the first chapter in yours. I was reading the preface, and your very first paragraph says, You can't see the label from inside of the bottle. Mm-hmm. You can't see the label from inside of the bottle. And there is certainly a higher education bubble for experts and for faculty and staff and presidents, and we're all inside that bubble. What, Brian, what guidance would you give to those of us in that bubble to help us gain a better understanding of higher education's challenges from the perspective of both students and faculty?
1: Well, you know, I can tell you, Gary, what helped me, uh, which is, first of all, re- retire from a college presidency. Uh-huh. Uh, and going going back into the classroom and actually teaching about the the industry in which I've spent my life, and so when you teach about something, you really need to take a I think a dispassionate and careful look at it, and that was a that was a great opportunity for me. And then doing work outside the United States, you know, I've been doing work for the last three years in, on a university in Africa where the, the situation is completely different, and so it allowed me to. Get outside that bubble, as you describe it, of American higher education, you know what I would recommend to people who are who are in higher education is to talk to people who are outside it uh, and get a sense of how it is being perceived uh, because one of the things we're seeing right now with, um, with all of the um, drama around the, the congressional hearing and uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, really has its roots, I think, in a gradually increasing public loss of confidence in higher education. Uh, and it's, it's really important for people who are inside it uh, to talk to people who are outside it, people who they respect, smart people, to say, what do you think about us, what concerns do you have about us, and why? I think it would be very instructive.
0: In the first chapter, there's a line in the book, and I'm going to read that line. And you talk about, and I quote, the irresistible force of economics and demographics is running straight into the immovable object of college governance and culture. And there's a line, and I've used it often, that culture eats change for lunch.
1: Mm-hmm. Is
0: that, Ryan, is that really what your book is about? And is it describing the current culture and offering guidance on how to move that culture without being eaten?
1: Uh- to be totally honest, it's easier to, uh, to diagnose the problem than it is to prescribe a yeah. solution. But, but you know, the short answer is, is yes. The problem that, or the problems that higher education faces are, are numerous and obvious, beginning with the, the financial challenge, which affects the vast majority of public and private colleges in the United States. Uh, it's, it's easy to see I'm an English professor. I'm not a math professor or an economist, and it's easy for me to see. Uh, and the fact that, uh, despite that, uh, there's been very little change in the model, very little serious attempt to bend the cost curve, suggests that there is some sort of very serious impediment. And the, I think the, the essential argument of the book is that that impediment is embedded both in the culture and in the practices of traditional higher education. Uh, So, you know, I have some ideas about about how to change things, whether they are are realistic or not, it's hard to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm staying in the first chapter, and you offer that real change, major change to higher education is necessary. Yet the title (laughs) of your book, While Entertaining, and we've talked about that, suggests that that's a tough assignment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Share your thoughts of, in general about the change and maybe throw out a time frame. You think that that change might be needed just for the industry as a whole.
1: So uh, I think there there are two numbers that I use when uh, people ask me why I think higher education needs more than slow incremental change, and they're 56 and 46. 56% is right now the average discount rate at private colleges in the United States. Uh, that is, uh, higher, private higher education in the United States is on sale for more than half off, and that number has been grow, growing, growing non-trivially every year. Uh, and that is a that is a process that cannot continue, because eventually you end up with a discount rate of 100 percent, and you're giving it away for free. Uh, and so, to those who think that that Change is not necessary. I say, all right, fix, fix that. How do you respond to that fundamental economic problem combined with uh, a demographic decline that's going to take place over the next, over the next decade? Uh, 46 is the percentage of African American students who enter college and graduate within six years. Uh, in my view, that is unacceptable. Uh, and reveals a dramatic inefficiency in the system and inequity in the system. Uh, and again, I ask those that think the changes are necessary: How do you understand that number, and are you comfortable with it? So I think I think there are problems both with the economic model and with the effectiveness and efficiency of higher education in its current form. Uh, and how do you how do you change that? You know, I think that we need to. Stop thinking about doing things the way we've always done them and start thinking about doing things the way we need to do them in the future, uh, which does mean changing some of the practices and eventually changing some of the cultures on American college campuses and maybe look outside higher education at some other industries, uh, outside the United States at some other countries to see if there are lessons that could be learned about how change actually works.
0: And one of the things I've written about and talked about in in all the media that I use is this is, at its heart, a supply and demand issue. There are too many college seats and not enough college students to fill those seats. And I make the argument, I'm going to ask you if I'm right or wrong. I make the argument, Brian, that no amount of programmatic changes are going to change that basic economic law. Am I right or wrong?
1: I think there's no question you're right. I mean, the, the reality is that no matter what happens in higher education over the next 20 years, uh, the, the supply and demand are going to have to right-size themselves. Uh, and right now in the United States, there is an oversupply of college seats uh, and an undersupply of students to fill those seats. And that situation is going to get worse uh, over the next 10 or 15 years, particularly in the Northeast, to the Mid-Atlantic and the Midwest. And so, much as we might want every college that exists in the United States right now to survive, they all, they all are doing some important things, they all have value to people. Uh, the reality is that, that the current situation is not sustainable. Colleges will close. Uh, and even if they do all of the right things, uh, the, the size of the market uh, and the economic demands of the market will lead to Fewer colleges, ten and twenty years from now, than exist right now. That's it. There's a there's a law in economics that that's called Steins Law, which simply says if some if it's impossible for something to continue, it won't. And I think that would be applicable to higher education right now. If it's impossible for the status quo to continue, it won't.
0: As I as I read the book, uh, and, and for those listening in on the podcast, and uh, Brian and I talked about this. I read the book in three days, four days, something like that. It may not fit the category of page turner, but it was just so well done. And Brian, the approach that I, the analogy that I kind of came up with is you were kind of wrote this like a physician. You had symptoms and then you offered some treatments for the symptoms and diagnosing the disease. And one of the symptoms you talked about was the academic calendar. Mm -hmm. And you referenced that there is probably no other industry that makes such ineffective use of its physical plant than higher education. You also noted in that same section that college courses are typically taught only for about 30 out of the 52 weeks in a year. Now, those are both embedded cultural components to higher education. Based on your research, based on your experience, do you believe that those changes will be organic or will there need to be some sort of cataclysmic financial sequence of events to get faculty to look at items like these?
1: Uh, You know, we, and this is a statement I think that doesn't just apply to higher education, but we have a tendency in the United States to wait until something is on the brink of collapse before we address it. Uh, You think about our healthcare system and our infrastructure. And unfortunately, I think that, that that is likely to be the situation with higher education. I think there is lots of evidence already existing that uh, a three year college degree and a more efficient uh, and uh, restricted calendar can work. Uh, the university in Africa that I'm working with, the African Leadership University, uh, offers a bachelor's degree over three years by offering three, essentially three 15 week terms divided by three week breaks. Uh, and it, uh, it saves students money. Uh, and it saves the opportunity cost of being out of the job market for another year. Yeah. We know that that can work. We know that uh, that there's no decline in learning, uh, but it's going to be very, very hard given not just the culture in American higher education, but a lot of the contracts, uh, faculty contracts in American higher education to change that. Uh, there are many faculty members who are unionized, and those union contracts dictate the number of weeks a year that they teach uh, at McAllister, the faculty contract, even though it was paid out over 12 months, specified that they would teach for nine. Uh, and so there is a lot that will have to change uh, both culturally and contractually uh, to make that shift. Uh, but I, I really do believe uh, that Forced by circumstances, you will begin to see some colleges try to offer a better value proposition by getting students to graduation and to their degree in three years rather than four. But it will take, unfortunately, it will take desperation to get to
0: that point. That's that's sad in so many ways, but but I think you're right. And I want to step outside of it for just one second here, and I want to talk about the high school impact. And this is just kind of Gary Stocker talking uh, As I watch the hundreds and hundreds of colleges, Brian, with really just pathetically low four and six-year graduation rates, and you mentioned the 46 number a little bit ago, I've often wondered what role high school education, even substandard high school education, has on such low four-year college graduation rates. In your mind, in your opinion, is there a connection to be made with high school education and college graduation rates?
1: They're inseparable. So if you look at the at the sector that has the lowest graduation rate, which is community colleges, uh, it, it's very easy to point one's finger at community colleges and say you're doing a terrible job. Uh, but the reality is that because of the inadequacies in our K through 12 system, uh, community colleges, two-year colleges have to spend a disproportionate amount of time on what is often described as remedial uh, coursework. That is coursework that students should have done, things that they should have learned in high school. And so it's unsurprising that if you're spending half your time just getting students ready for college, uh, that it's gonna be very difficult to get students to graduate from college on time. So, so I think in the, in the institutions with the lowest graduation rates, there are a lot of factors. Finance is a factor. Student support is a factor. Uh, but one of the factors is students who are simply unprepared for college, yeah. uh, and either need to take a lot of remedial courses or or leave or, or or don't succeed academically because they're not prepared. So we really need to think of it as a you know as a, a K through 16 system, uh, and and understand that years. 13 through 16 are deeply dependent on that K through 12 progression. And if that K through 12 progression isn't working, uh, then the rest of it's not going to work. It's not accidental that the students who tend to do best in college come from uh, affluent, well-funded, either private schools or suburban schools because they are better prepared for a college environment.
0: In, in my background, believe it or not, is in healthcare. I'm a medical laboratory scientist by training. And, and you, you caught me in, in the book. You noted that when mo- when we buy most of the stuff we purchase, we kind of have some idea what we're buying. Computers and phones, cars, gallons of milk houses, that kind of stuff. Yet like Medicare, medical care, you make the point where precious few folks actually know what they're buying for their insurance or out-of-pocket fees. You make the case that higher education is similar. How so? How is higher education
1: um, similar to healthcare? So, higher education is an example of um, what economists call a credence good, uh, which means that when you purchase it, uh, you don't really understand what you're getting, not only when you're doing the purchasing, but after you've completed it. So, people select the college. Uh, they have no real way of knowing whether that college is better than any other college, and when they complete that college, they have no real way of knowing whether what they got is what they needed. And with, the, with credence goods, what tends to happen is, in the absence of the at pres- the absence of firsthand knowledge, people tend to rely on things like rankings uh, and the opinions of experts and on reputation. Uh, and that's why things like the u s. news rankings are so influential. Uh, and that's why the reputations in higher education are both so static uh, and so influential, uh, because people have very little firsthand evidence to go on. You don't you don't get to go to college five times uh, and decide which one offered you the best education. Uh, just like when you go into a surgeon's office and he says, unless you get this uh, joint replaced. You're going to have a big problem. You have you have no real way of knowing whether that's right or wrong, or whether you would be better or worse off if you took a particular medication. You have to trust the opinion of the expert. Uh, and for consumers of higher education, that means that they rely very heavily uh, on things like U.S. News rankings.
0: So, Brian, we tend to spend a lot of time studying the top and the bottom ends of the higher education market. The top fifty. 50- 100 colleges, something like that, and the bottom, those that are about to close or doing layoffs, those kind of things. But not really much in my experience on the middle. Those colleges that are unlikely to close, but kind of face a a mostly monthly tuition paycheck to to tuition paycheck kind of existence. Do you believe that maybe those are the types of colleges and universities that will lead to change in areas like mergers and consolidations and scheduling and other things?
1: They probably will have to be. Uh, The colleges at the top that you describe uh, have the means to change, but not the incentive. The colleges at the bottom that you describe have the incentive to change, but not the means. That is, uh, they know they need to change, but they just don't have the resources uh, to try new things uh, or to do more than simply cut to try to stay alive. Uh, The institutions in the middle Uh, are the ones that have some combination of an incentive to change because they don't have multi-billion dollar endowments and they don't have 5% admission rates. Uh, But they're also not, as you say, in, in danger of immediately closing. They have some resources, some brand strength, some opportunity. And so I think it's those institutions, the ones that know that they can't just keep running it back every year and be secure, uh, but also have some opportunities, some resources, some energy to try something new. Uh, that's probably where you're most likely to see uh, innovation come from within American higher education that is not at the very top, as you say, and not at the very bottom. And, and you know the good news is that the majority of institutions do fall into that Middle category, and so of those hundreds and hundreds, hopefully there will be a few that decide that uh, they want to try to do something other than what they're doing right now.
0: I tell a story about uh, Cardinal Stretch University, which you and I know closed up up in uh, Milwaukee earlier this year. Mm-hmm. and you know it and, well. Yeah, And the story that I tell is that the week after the president of Stretch, and the name escapes me did an interview, and I think I saw it on YouTube or recorded somewhere, in which he effectively rationalized the closure. Right. And as I listened to it, I was a little distressed, but really as I stepped back and pondered that, the presidents of these colleges and their board members have that fiduciary responsibility to protect the best interests of the colleges. And that's exactly what the president, Cardinal Stritch, and the others that have closed in the coming in the recent months and stuff are doing. But my question kind of moves away from that is there's a fiduciary for the colleges, the president, CFO, board members, is there a fiduciary for students and faculty? And if not, should there be?
1: Of course, I think that, you know, you have, you have multiple, multiple responsibilities as the leader of an institution. Uh, And one of them is to protect the, the reputation and the financial stability of the institution. But ultimately, the institution exists to serve students, uh, and the institution wants to be fair in its treatment of its employees. And so, any decision has to be made with all of those groups in mind. If and and what we've seen in the closures of of some colleges, and these are the ones that have been most poorly handled, is the blindsiding of students. Right. Uh, you know, it's clearly not in the interest of a, of a failing college to broadcast the fact that it is failing, because that will tend to accelerate the failure. Yep. Uh, but in prioritizing that, sometimes colleges have failed to prioritize uh, the interests of the students who are, who are blindsided uh, and the, the employees who are blindsided. Uh, by the closure of an institution that may have been proclaiming up until the prior week that everything was just fine. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough balancing act. I, really? I would never pretend that it is easy. Uh, but, you know, my experience is that it doesn't take a, a financial genius to look at the financial trajectory of an institution and understand uh, that there is probably an end point ahead and, Once you see that clearly, uh, it's probably in the interest of everybody to begin to very honestly and visibly wind things down uh, rather than just have people show up one day and find the doors
0: locked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go back into the book and I want to read a quote. And this is one of the quotes that is entertaining. And the quote reads like this, Drew University, when looking for a new president, Drew University proclaimed that, in this job description, that the university seeks a bold visionary who is innovative, entrepreneurial, inspiring, and financially astute. Don't weigh all, you say. And in reality, you go on, most presidents are far from messianic, and it is not even clear if a messiah messiah could be transformational within most college and university settings. Now, Brian, I'm guessing your tongue was firmly embedded in your writing cheek. Yes. when you wrote that. But <laughs> but what are the odds that, that higher education in general and college faculty in particular respond when higher education experts and certainly you've got to be in that category and you can define it any way you want. What are the odds that these higher education folks will respond when when and I do this too, when we lovingly make fun and challenge the perspectives that they offer through statements like this.
1: They don't love it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Is that an yeah. experience?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I I, I get it. I mean, nobody nobody likes to have their worldview challenged. Uh, and one of the things I tried to do in the book was make it clear that that I was in my own career in many ways as guilty of, of some of these things as. The people working in higher education, when I was a faculty member, I uh, would have, would have defended to the death my right to tenure. Uh, And I was deeply suspicious of the administration without knowing very much about what the administration actually did. Uh, So I think, I think an important part of critiquing something is humility uh, and not trying to argue that you are better or smarter than other people. Uh, but just that your experience and your, your vantage point has given you the gift of being able to look at some things in a way that is perhaps different from how you looked at them before. Uh, but, um, but no, generally, generally I have found that, uh, it is pretty difficult, uh, for, for leaders in higher education to critique faculty without paying a pretty heavy price and it's one of the reasons why it's easier for me to do it as an ex-president than as a sitting president.
0: Fascinating in so many ways and I've got just a couple questions left but before I go there you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you're doing some work with higher education in Africa. Would you mind sharing with the listeners what that's all about, what you're doing, the history behind that?
1: Sure, there's a, a graduate of Macalester um, who I've known for a long time named Fred Swaniker, who has become one of the uh, leading nonprofit entrepreneurs on the continent and who believes that the key to Africa's future, uh, and remember, africa the average age in Africa is 19. The average age in the United States is 38. Uh, it's got the fastest growing population in the world and the population that is most underserved by higher education. Uh, and his belief is that uh, only if that can be changed, can the trajectory of the continent be changed. Yeah. And so he's founded a number of educational institutions, including the one I'm working with, the African Leadership University, which is now um, about eight or nine years old, with a main campus in Kigali and Rwanda. Uh, and the goal in, in designing this university is to try to provide a high-quality education at scale, uh, at a cost that that at least some people in Africa can afford. Uh, so right now the tuition for a year at ALU is $3,000, uh, not $30,000 and not $70,000. Uh, and um, the, the, the retention rates are very high, uh, closer to what you'd expect to see at an elite American institution than what you see uh, at most American institutions. Uh, And the vast majority of students who are graduating are getting jobs, which in Africa is is a very big deal. The model is very, very different. Uh, Students don't take a major. They choose a mission. Uh, The model is a mix of in-person, online, and experiential learning. Uh, which helps both lower the cost and and I think improve the quality of the education. Uh and it is and it's an experimental work in progress that could could never have taken place I think within uh an American context because it is just so different uh and it faces so few of the impediments to change that uh, that I've described in American higher education. Uh you know there's there are many people going back to Clayton Christensen decades ago who've written about the fact that it's easier to change the legacy industry from without than from within. Uh, it was easier for Apple to disrupt IBM than it would have been for IBM to disrupt itself. Uh, and his theory always was that that was going, what was going to happen to higher education, that it was going to be disrupted from without. I think his assumption is that it would happen through technology and for-profit companies. That may be the case, but another possibility is that it happens from less developed economies and in regions of greater constraint where they have to experiment. Uh, They have to innovate. Uh, Fred likes to say constraint drives innovation. Uh, And when when you don't have enough PhDs, when students don't have enough money, uh, when you can't build multi-billion dollar campuses, uh, and when you need to educate students, what do you do? Well, that's the question that people in Africa have to confront. Uh, and some of the answers that they're coming up with, I think, can can teach those in more developed systems a lot. Uh, and so that's why I find it so fascinating to work on. I, I always, as a college president, used to fantasize about what it would be like to build a college from scratch, and in effect now that's what I'm getting to participate in, and it is I'm um, I'm I'm learning a lot and enjoying it a lot.
0: And there's more details in the book, and again Brian Brian Rosenberg is my is my guest today, and his book was whatever it is I don't like it, and and the Africa stuff is fascinating both as you explain it, Brian, and in the book itself. So. Starting a college from scratch and and you present that well is is well worth investing in the book. But let's go back to the United States for just a couple more quick questions. And I want to go back to a quote. Uh, And again, I think you probably had your tongue was hurting you because you had it in your cheek a lot as you wrote many of these lines in the book. And this one is, the easiest way to survive for extended time in a college presidency is to stay in your lane, raise money, give speeches, show up at sporting events and balance the budget. But do not try to interfere, you write, with the actual core academic work of the institution. And then you wrap it up with, there be dragons. Mm -hmm. Now, that quote is hardly an endorsement for college leaders to rock the proverbial education boat. Right. Do we talk about, is this the old line where a crisis is a terrible thing to waste? Does that apply to some or all segments of higher education? You
1: know, I... I would I would hope so. I mean, you know, I've thought a lot about the presidents who who do seem to have had uh, more than a, a minimal impact on the trajectory of their institutions, and you know, you the names are familiar to most people: Michael Crow at Arizona State, Paul LeBlanc at at Southern New Hampshire, Leon Botstein at at Bard, uh, and you know, the reality is what. What those presidents have in common, whether you like what they've done or not, is that they've essentially ignored shared governance. You know, they have acted more like the leaders of, um, of corporations. Uh, and that's not something that typically sits well uh, within higher education. It's not something that's possible at most institutions. But for a variety of reasons, they've been placed at institutions where it was possible. But for most of us who are in those jobs, we are, reality is that we have a lot less power than people think and a lot more constraints. At Macalester, uh, according to the, the faculty handbook, the faculty had responsibility, not just for the curriculum generally, but for things like the elimination of an academic program. An academic program could only be eliminated uh, through a vote of the full faculty. Uh, that is, that is not a recipe for, for change. Uh, and most college presidents uh, step into situations in which they are surrounded by constraints of, of those kinds. And when you, when you do try to push against them, uh, the evidence suggests that it doesn't often go well. There is a reason why the average tenure of a college president has, over the past 10 or 15 years, dropped from about eight and a half years to fewer than six years. Uh, there, there's no one reason for it, uh, but I think one of the reasons is the fact that there is this tension between the need for change and the resistance to change. Presidents push against it, and more often than not, they don't succeed, and they either leave voluntarily or they're forced out.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think this happened so much. And just yesterday, Bradley University, just south of you in Peoria, announced their cutbacks, both the mm-hmm. programs and faculty. And I can't remember the date, but the faculty have already gone through their no confidence vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and the presidents are trying to make wise business decisions for better, or for worse. And, you know, any business change, any change of the business model, and there's always going to be protests. This is America. I understand that. But it's almost formulaic. And that you make a business change announcement, you know there are going to be protests, and that happens time after time again. And I've got just two more questions. And and there was a chapter on disciplines, Brian, Uh that you talked about, that faculty members are typically more loyal to their disciplines than they are to their institutions. I look at that statement through the lens of a faltering private college. Mm -hmm. In your experience and your observations, does a near-college death experience tend to change the loyalties from department toward the college?
1: Uh, It can. Uh, I think certainly, uh, again, drawing upon McAllister's experience, many people don't know that even though McAllister right now is is an affluent institution and highly selective, uh, in the 1970s it almost shut down uh because it it had no money, uh, and the faculty at that point banded together it the faculty voluntarily took an across the board fifteen percent uh pay cut in order to preserve the jobs of their colleagues uh and so clearly they were thinking they were thinking institutionally, so it can happen through crisis. I think there are other less dangerous ways for it to happen. My experience is that institutions that build into their curriculum some kind of common experience in which all faculty participate uh, tend to create different faculty cultures than ones that are entirely shaped by departments Uh, so uh, you know i i spent five years at lawrence university as the chief academic officer lawrence as for more than a half century had what they call freshman humanities uh, all faculty, regardless of discipline, teach in that program, uh, and I think it's created a a sense of community and coherence within that faculty that um, that I didn't necessarily see at mcallister uh, and I think the same is true at places like Columbia, where they have the core curriculum and at the University of Chicago and a few other places. Or uh, Sinus College uh, has created a program like that within the last decade or so. Uh, and I've heard from people there that it's really brought the faculty together. So I think when faculty do things that take them outside their departments, it's more likely to create uh, a culture of community within the college. When they remain entirely in their disciplines, that's less likely to happen.
0: Yeah. And then finally, I, I, I'm going to read the question, and then I'm going to ask you to apply it to some different stakeholders in higher education. And it's, of course, your chance to rise to the mountaintop and provide guidance uh, to those listening to this podcast. And here's a question. If there's one tip or piece of guidance you want to give to each of these groups, what is it? If there's one tip or piece of guidance you want to give. College boards, what's the one piece of guidance you would give to college board, board of trustee members?
1: Uh, understand the difference between oversight and management, but be engaged. Uh, You can't see being on a board simply as an opportunity to come to campus a few times a year and and relive the memories of your college days. Uh, You really need to bring the the expertise uh, and the knowledge that you have from your various fields of endeavor to bear upon the institution uh, and to help it deal with its challenges. Uh, There's a lot that can be learned, as I said earlier. Uh, from other industries. And without trying to run the college, uh, help the college learn that. Uh, And remember always that your first responsibility is the well-being of the mission uh, and the financial sustainability of your institution.
0: And your peers that are college presidents in 2023 heading into 2024, that one piece of guidance you would give to them based on your experience and work.
1: Uh, don't assume that things will be the same 20 years from now as they are now. Uh, and try to make decisions that will benefit the school, not just tomorrow, but in the future. I really believe that the, the work of a college president, if properly done, rarely bears fruit during the college presidency. Your job is to make sure that the person holding your job 20 years from now, uh, has an opportunity to succeed. And that means thinking long-term and not just thinking about what is best for you or for
0: the college tomorrow. And of course, faculty. What's that one tip you would give to the prototypical faculty member in higher education? Educate
1: yourself about higher education, about your institution, about its economics, uh, about the pressures that it faces, uh, and bring the same open mind Uh, and thoughtful perspective uh, to your workplace uh, that you bring to your discipline. Uh, Just the way you approach a a problem in your field by looking at the evidence and trying to come to the best conclusion, uh, do the same when you're thinking about the the state of and the future of the college or university at which you work.
0: And to the typical, the traditional college-age student. College is still
1: worth it, uh, and uh, it's, college is not for everybody, and I would never never argue that it's for everybody, uh, but, uh, but a college degree is still one of the best investments you can make in your life. Make that investment carefully, uh, and try when you go to college to find the right balance between doing things that you love and that enrich you, uh, and doing things that will give you the skills that will prepare you for a future of employment. But don't lose faith in college. It is still, it is still uh, the easiest doorway to a better life.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then the last one before we wrap this up is kind of an interesting niche the parents of the traditional college age students. What one piece of advice, guidance would you give them? It,
1: it is, I think, a cliche, uh, but, uh, don't simply be guided by college rankings. Uh, you want to make sure that the institution to which you are sending your children is financially secure, uh, and will provide a good learning environment for your children. But the single most important thing when someone goes to college is to do well. Uh, it's not the reputation of the college. It's to do well. And so do everything you can to try to find a college that's the right match for your children, uh, one in which they will thrive and one in which they will do well, because that's a better predictor of success than the the ranking of a college in U.S. News.
0: And Brian, how do our listeners get a copy of Whatever It Is, I Don't Like It, the book?
1: Uh, It's available from um, Harvard Education Press on their website. It's also available on on Amazon, as both an ebook and a physical book, and uh, also from uh, bookshop.org, which uh, will allow you to purchase the book through your local independent bookstore.
0: Dr. Brian Rosenberg has been my guest today. His recent book, Whatever It Is, I Don't Like It, is fascinating in many ways. And the seven chapters, I think, are exquisitely balanced and logical as they step the reader through where higher education has been, where it needs to go, and even how to get there. And I think I shared with Brian, I read the book in three to four days. And Brian, the only other time I did that was Tom Clancy's books back in the 1980s <laughs> 1990s. And to our listeners, you know this, the industry is changing. Sticking one's head in the proverbial sand and hoping for the best is a dangerous and problematic approach. And there are folks who will move forward, and Dr. Rosenberg talked about those. And he he adds he offers guidance to those. And I think, I believe, it's not I think, I believe the first movers as colleges will have a distinct competitive advantage. So wait for change, make the change, hide from the change. Whatever it is, I don't like it, can help you decide which of those roles you want for yourself and your organization. Brian Rosenberg, a pleasure.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: This is Gary Stalker. I'll be back next Monday with a regular podcast of This Week in College Viability. So long for now.